Hello and welcome to the first proper episode of the Berubara Tag Boom. In this episode, I'm going to go through an introduction of this project that I've been working on since last year. And we're going to have a rough synopsis of what this project's going to be, what I'm going to try to explain. Words that are going to be important to know for the written aspect of this project and the audio podcast. The books and blogs that I've been reading that were central to my research and my thoughts on the books themselves and my thought process throughout the years on why Beauty Pair, the tag teams of the late 70s and Crush Gals became as popular as they did. But first I'm gonna talk about for most people in the West, when they think popular Joshi wrestling, they usually go to the period of 1991 to 1995, 1996. And that's when we see interpromotional fuse in the interpromotional shows, most notably Big Egg Universe, matches between AJW, JWP Project, LLPW, and FMW's women's division. This era is when you're going to see most matches recommended from in the West. If you say, hey, what's a good Joshi wrestling match? You're probably going to see Manami Toyota, Kira Hukuto, Aja Kong, Dynamite Kanzai, Mayumi Ozaki. And this is an era of great wrestling and some of the best talent we've ever seen. And it was popular, but ironically, the tail ends of popularity for Joshi wrestling. As in 1996, we see a mass exodus from AJW because they've lost a lot of money, millions of dollars, and they checks bounced twice, I believe, and people leave to form their new promotions. New promotions means oversaturation, and then the economy being solved since the beginning of the decade. Joshi Wrestling loses popularity and money fast after 1996. But strangely enough, for all the praise that the 90s get, not as many people point to the 80s, which is the most popular decade for AGW in Joshi Wrestling. We have the Crush Gals, which in my opinion are the most popular tag team and wrestling act in Joshi Wrestling. We also see the Dynamite Gals, we see the Jumping Bomb Angels, we see the creation of JWP. A lot of also great and amazing talent were in the 80s, and while there is still some discussion of the 80s and Crush Gals popularity, we very rarely see any discussion about Beauty Pair and this era of the 70s of AJW and how Joshi Wrestling became popular in the 70s and what influenced the creation of Beauty Pair. And I feel it's important to discuss because without the Beauty Pair, we would not have seen the creation of Crush Gals. And it's important because without the 70s and the creation of Beauty Pair, we can't get to Crush Gals. And in order to truly understand how Beauty Pair gets created, we have to understand several moments in girls' culture in Japan throughout the 20th century. And we have to understand the different pop cultural influences that come into play to make the Fuji TV executive say, we need a pair of women who can sing in order to become an act that can match Bak Fumiyaki's popularity. So a rough synopsis of the history of AJW, in the mid-70s we have the debut of Mak Fumiyaki. Mak Fumiyaki is important because in junior high school, she was in a national singing competition and became runner-up. She had built-in popularity. So when she decides to become a wrestler, Fuji Television decides to sign a deal with AJW and show Mak Fumiyaki's debut on national TV because at the time, Fuji Television was trying to attract an audience of mothers and families, and they decided Mak Fumiyaki would be the one to bring in this audience of families and mothers and help clean up Joshi Wrestling's image. 
When she retires in 1976 and transitions into a movie actress, Fuji Television needs an act that can replace her because when she retired, the ratings were already declining at an alarming rate. So in 1976, we have a new pop duo that's starting to gain popularity called Pink Lady. And we also see the creation of Rosary 3 from the Takaru Zuku Review in the tail end of ta- the Rosary 2. The Takaru Zuku Review is going to be a company that I'm going to be referring to a lot throughout this project because their influence on Joshi wrestling is so great. But the main aspect of the Takaru Zuku Review that influences Joshi wrestling is the Takaru Zuku Review and review theaters in Japan are all female. And because of that, we have women playing male roles and female roles. The women who play male roles are otokoyaku, and women who play female roles are muzumeyaku. And in the 70s, we see the creation of a formal top star system. And your top stars, or golden pair, are your top otokoyaku who plays all your male lead roles, and your top muzumeyaku who plays all your lead female roles. So crafted in the image of a top duo or the top stars of Takarazuka, we create beauty pair. Jackie Sato is our otokoyaku and she wears mostly blue gear because blue is gendered as a male color in Japan. And Maki Ueda is our top muzumiyaku and she wears a lot of red gear because red is gendered as a female color in Japan. So Takarazuka review having a surge in popularity themselves between 74 and 76. Pink Lady being a new rising pop act in 76 as well. Those two influences come together and Fuji TV and AJW create Beauty Pair. And because of those influences, Beauty Pair, not instantly, but quite rapidly become a huge success. And they bring in this new audience to Joshi Wrestling that hadn't been seen before and that is of young girls and teens. At that time, it was presumed that girls and young women wouldn't be interested in wrestling and that wrestling would mostly attract a male audience and some women as well, but mostly a male audience. But Beauty Pair and Makfumiake, but especially Beauty Pair, they're bringing in these young women and teen girls that had never supposedly shown interest in wrestling before because they were taking elements from girls' culture and imagery that's already popular with this audience, but in a wrestling setting. And with the middle class and upper class in Japan still expanding in the post-war era, these young women who are now going into the workforce and these teen girls whose families supposedly have more disposable income are now going off these wrestling shows to see these tag teams and wrestlers perform songs that sound like the songs they already like. They're dressing in ways that celebrities they already like dress. They're seeing these tag teams take inspiration also from Takarazuka Review actresses who are in the middle of doing Rosaricide musicals, Rosaricide being a very popular shoujo manga. And it in retrospect, it seems easy. Yes, you take a popular thing from A, take a popular thing from B, C, add it together, you're gonna get a success. But we had never seen something like this happen with girls' culture. Girls' culture had never been in such a mainstream focus and have such a spot in the mainstream consciousness that 
a wrestling company says, we need to take from that. We need to take whatever we can from this and bring it to our product. And we get that with Beauty Pair and it pays off dividends. AGW changes how they present their wrestlers based off the success of Beauty Pair. The official AGW program goes from a standard wrestling program and turns into like a celebrity idol magazine like Tiger Beat in the States. All of this evolution of girls' culture, interaction between this shoujo audience and these creators all coming together in the 70s, we see the creation of some of the biggest, most important shoujo manga in the early 70s, some becoming so popular that other aspects of girls' culture, like Takuzuki Review, create musical productions of these popular manga, and that becomes so popular that it influences this rising sport of joshi wrestling, and it becomes such a hit. And we, of course, see that carry out through the 70s and into the 80s with all these tag teams. We see Golden Pair, Queen Angels, Black Pair, White Pair. We see the eventual creation of Crush Gals, Dynamite Gals, Jumping Bomb Angels. All this happens because of a lot of key moments throughout the 20th century for the creation of this new class of citizen, the shoujo, the publication boom, Taisho era, girls' magazines, the themes that take place before the war and the themes that take place after the war. The creation of the visual aesthetic of shoujo manga, again, taken from girls' magazines from the pre-war era into the 50s and 60s in the creation of this new popular medium. My goal for this project is to look through all these different influences and cultural evolution that leads us to Beauty Pair and Crush Gals and why these tag teams attracted such an intense audience of teen girls and young women that were so dedicated to these idols and why these women want to become wrestlers and how when Crush Gals retire and we don't get another tag team in this image, this female audience almost disappears and gets replaced by a male audience that are already established wrestling fans and how that also affects the waning popularity of Joshi wrestling and thus the shrinking talent pool for Joshi wrestling after the 90s. In the written post, I'll go more in detail for the different words that are necessary to know for this series. In the podcast, I'll also go through this glossary, if you will, of words. I've already referred to AJW AJW is All Japan Women's Pro Wrestling. The Japanese shorthand name for this is Zenjo. But AJW was the main Joshi promotion from 1968 up until 1986 when JWP gets created. But most of our series will take place within AJW. Joshi, in the literal meaning, is a young woman. And when you watch sports, read about women's sports in Japan, Joshi is going to be the word used. Shoujo also means young woman in the literal sense. But in the figurative sense, it specifically means a young, chaste woman. A shoujo is from the middle and upper class. She goes to secondary school. She's educated. She might enter the workforce. If she is from a family that is well off enough, she won't enter the workforce. But she is what many in modern Japan would say is the ideal Japanese woman. She is, as some were saying in that time period, 
the caretaker of Japanese culture. She is the model of Japanese beauty, the shoujo, not young women from outside the middle and upper classes, because those women wouldn't be able to get educated. They may be doing nefarious things like premarital sex. They would be entering the workforce. If their families were poor enough, they would have to be doing manual labor. And that was not seen as a good thing for a young woman to do. Physical labor, anything to dirty her reputation. I've already mentioned the Takaruzuku Review. Review theater is different from the type of theater you'll see in Broadway, which Broadway theater is more long, multi-act plays with a singular story, whereas review theater of different themes, although sometimes it can be of a singular theme, shown throughout different acts of different dances and music. The Takaruzuka and other review theaters in Japan are usually all female. In 1913, the Takaruzuka Review was founded and it marked the official return of women to the stage as women were banned from theater in Edo era because a lot of kabuki companies were using the actresses as prostitutes so the shogunate government banned women from the theater. I've already explained it, but otokoyaku are your actresses that play male roles, and muzumeyaku are the actresses that play female roles. I'll be referring to this a lot, especially when I get into the details of how beauty pair were created, the berubara boom Takaruzuka experience from 74 to 76. And the last major term that will be essential for this project is an S-class relationship. An S-class relationship is a non-sexual platonic relationship between girls, usually at secondary school. Now, a lot of Western scholarship, they attach lesbianism and queer identity on S-class relationships. And that's not an accurate way to view this phenomenon from pre-war Japan at girls' schools. Because something that it's hard to not frame everything as we view it in contemporary times, and especially living in a predominantly Christian country in the West. But in the past, even in European countries, especially in countries outside the West, homosexual acts did not mean a homosexual identity. And to expand off of that, platonic relationships that feature a lot of what is can be referred to as skinship did not mean homosexuality as we would define it today. So S-class relationships usually run off a junior and senior relationship dynamic between two students. So you could have you know multiple friends, but you would have one person you'd be in an S-class relationship with. And you would typically exchange letters, gifts, you would hang out after school, you would hang out before school. But it's very important to understand that while yes, there were instances of S-class relationships being homosexual, but a lot were just platonic friendships between girls. And I'm gonna expand on this in a future episode, but as I said, a lot of people in the West, you can even look on the Wikipedia page for S-class, they identify this as a lesbian thing when it just doesn't because Japan is not a predominantly Christian society. Homosexual identity didn't become attached to homosexual acts 
even up until the 30s in Japan. So girls having close relationships in adolescence into young adulthood was seen as normal. And in school, it was seen as a way for girls to learn how to have deeply emotional connections with another person because pre-war Japan was built off of samurai society and samurai society was very separated by the sexes. So girls didn't communicate and hang out with boys. That was seen as an inappropriate thing to do. So they would develop connections with their fellow classmates at all girls schools. And one of these things that developed from that homosocial environment was an S-class relationship. It is a relationship between two girls that can expand beyond school. Many Women who had an S-class relationship stay friends with that other woman throughout their lives, but they continue into a heterosexual lifestyle because that relationship wasn't seen as a subversion of heterosexuality. It was seen as a part of this heterosexual society. So now I'm going to get into the major books and sources for this project. And the biggest one is this Amebelo blog by Kimumasa992. Without this blog, I would have never heard of the term of color coding, the tag boom, the tag teams. Almost all the pictures I have of the late 70s comes from this person's blog because this person has been a fan since Beauty Pair started. This blog is where I've gotten all my knowledge and I've tweeted the blog before, I've talked about them before, but Kimumasa992, they're the reason why their blog, I cannot think enough. If I can find a way to just say, hey, thank you for being a fan because we, I'm a fan of this period too, I would love to. But this is it. This is the holy grail of information for me. This is what honestly started this project all the way back in 2018. This is what kickstarted all of this. And I can't say that enough, but this blog is how I got here. The next book I'm going to discuss is. Takarazuka, Gender Politics and Popular Culture in Modern Japan by Jennifer Robertson. This is the first book that I purchased about Takarazuka Review, and it has a lot of criticism, and it is well-deserved criticism that I'll discuss after this point, but this is the best documentation I've seen of Takarazuka Review and Ichizo Kobayashi's involvement in the war machine and the propaganda machine of Imperial Japan. Ichijo Kobayashi was heavily involved in the war effort. He was a former president of a Korean electricity company and occupied Korea. He was also involved with companies in occupied Manchuria. This book discusses how a lot of people in the government saw Takuzuka as a way for the Japanese citizen to see the Japanese empire. The Takuzuka Review would make productions take place in occupied territories to not only show citizens what the Japanese empire looks like, but to also show the citizens under Japanese rule how they should act as minorities in the Japanese empire. Like, this is a proper way you should be Chinese. This is how Koreans should act. This is how Polynesians should behave under the imperial flag of Japan. While her translations are rightfully criticized for focusing heavily on the homoeroticism you can take from the subtext of Takarazuka productions, I will say again this is probably the most detailed documentation of Takarazuka 
in Imperial Japan. And that is valuable in itself because any official Takarazuka resource will gloss over that period of time. The official Takarazuka English website goes from 1939 straight into 1950 saying Takarazuka Review bravely performed during the wartime and occupation. The Meiji Restoration by W.G. Beasley is probably the go-to book for the Meiji Restoration. It discusses the Japanese society of late Edo, Japan, the environment, the political movements happening before and during the foreign treaties of 1858 especially, the immediate aftermath of the signing of those 1858 treaties, the radicalization of different parties and different classes of the samurai and of the lords, the restoration of imperial rule in Japan in the immediate aftermath. So if you're interested in Japanese history, especially what's considered modern Japanese history, I would definitely recommend The Major Restoration. It's easy to read, simple language, very good book, especially considering it was written in the 70s. I can still recommend this. Passionate Friendship, The Aesthetics of Girls' Culture in Japan by Deborah Shimoon, one of the most important books I've read so far because Deborah criticizes Jennifer's translation works for her book, Takarazuka, and she places special emphasis not only on the S-class relationship, but she does a really great job of showing the creation of the aesthetics in the language of girls' culture from the magazines of the pre-war into the post-war of the 50s and 60s, and how after the war we see a great maturity happen for the themes that are taking place in shoujo manga. In the pre-war, heavy themes were considered not appropriate for girls' magazines as we should focus on lighthearted subjects like S-class relationships and fashion. Whereas in the post-war, we just see ideas and themes that would not have been conceivable before become commonplace in the 70s. If you want to learn more about how shoujo manga developed, I would definitely recommend this book. As I said before, it does a great job contextualizing how shoujo manga gets to the 70s, how the aesthetic of the large starry eyes, flowy hair, long limbs becomes what it is. And it's an evolution that takes place from the 1910s all the way into the 70s. Transformed Bodies and Gender Experiences of Women Wrestlers in Japan by Keiko Aiba. Word of warning, this book is expensive to ship if you're not in Japan. I had to pay $30 shipping just to get this from Tokyo. But for me personally, it was definitely worth it. Because not only is this probably the most proper translation of Joshi history, it also has interviews with, I believe, 25 wrestlers, which were all conducted under pseudonym. So unless you really know your wrestlers from 2002 to 2005, you will probably not figure out who most of these women are. But learning the personal stories of these wrestlers and how they view themselves in wrestling, very valuable not just for this project, but as a fan of Joshi Wrestling, to know how the performers feel about themselves and how society views them. And it really brings a personal element to Joshi Wrestling Gender Gymnastics, Performing and Consuming Japan's Takajizuka Review by Loni R. Stickland. This, I would say, is a better look at the Takajizuka Review. It has a more appropriate lens and isn't focused on this homoerotic subtext that a lot of Western viewers 
love to grab onto about the Sakuzuki Review. Stickland was a former translator for the review, and because she was a former employee, she has interviews like in Transform Bodies and Gender with former Takarazuka actresses, creative members, fans, and she also works to help put in perspective how the actresses in the review are affected by society's gender norms during and after they perform in the review. And she also calls out Jennifer Robinson's work her with her translation and again her hyperfixation on this homoerotic element in Takarazuka. But she also does point out that Jennifer Robinson does shed light on the various audience members of Takarazuka, which again, not as many people talk about. Because the Takarazuka fan is stereotyped as an adult woman from her 30s to 50s. In Robinson's work, she does talk about the male fans, how in the early days in the 20s, when a fan club was officially created for Takarazuka, it was women only, a lot of the male fans said, hey, we want a fan club too. Why don't you make us an official male fan club? And she also talks about different reasons why men would be attracted to the Takarazuka review beyond just, oh, I'm here to look at pretty women. But this is definitely, I think, a better representation of how the domestic audience in the domestic society looks at Takarazuka and how it subverts the gender norms and how it lives within the gender norms. And that's about it for this introductory episode. Hopefully it makes you interested in this long form project that I'm working on that I'm excited to share with people. The first episode did way better than I thought it would and it drummed up a lot of interest and hopefully this project fulfills this excitement people seem to have for this examination into why this wrestling phenomenon happened the way that it did with singing tag teams of the 70s and 80s. If you have any questions, feel free to leave a comment on SoundCloud, in the blog comments, or you can find me on Twitter at Noah Savior. I'll happily answer your questions to the best of my ability. And thanks for coming along this journey with me. As I said, this is a thought that I've been having since honestly 2016, because in 2016 I even made a tweet that there's no Takarazuka stuff in wrestling anymore. And through this project, I'll discuss what Takarazuka stuff is, what I thought it was back then, and how, even though my original thoughts were misguided in 2018, how I eventually come to what I think is the correct conclusion. And hopefully you guys enjoy this too, and will take away something from this project. It may not be the same self-reflection that I took from various aspects of this project, like gender presentation, physical confidence, things like that. But it may make you also examine how you consume your fandom and what types of media you like and how that media comes to be.